Hello, and welcome to the Project Good Podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about the pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good Podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people and the planet. For November, we're focusing on Giving Tuesday and the topic of eating disorders with Project Heal. Eating disorders are complex mental health conditions characterized by an unhealthy preoccupation with food, body weight, and body image. These disorders can have serious physical, emotional, and social consequences and often require professional treatment and support. There are several different types of eating or disorders, with the most common ones being anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Kelly Ruglis, who is this clinical, who is the chief clinical officer at Project Heal. Dr. Ruglis is a certified eating disorder specialist and received her doctorate in health psychology from Loma Linda University. She's had the unique experience of working with the full spectrum of eating disorders from young children in intensive feeding clinics with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder to teenagers and adults struggling with bulimia nervosa, anorexia nervosa, and binge eating disorders. She had the honor of developing the first family-based treatment orientation and medical stabilization program and outpatient eating disorder clinic at UCLA before opening her own private practice called Flourish Psychology that specializes in women's mental health. Let's get into the interview. has a different relationship with food. For some, it's a source of comfort, indulgence, or subsidence. Others can have a negative and even damaging association with food leading to eating disorders. Eating disorders are serious mental health conditions signifying a person's unhealthy relationship with food. Some of the stats from top nutrition journals the National Eating Disorders Association and Psychology Today note that eating disorders globally have increased from a 3.4% to a 7.8% and really bloomed between 2000 and 2018. 70 million people internationally live with eating disorders. In Japan, it has the highest prevalence of eating disorders in Asia, followed by Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, and South Korea. Austria has the highest prevalence in Europe, and almost half of Americans know someone with an eating disorder. It is estimated that out of the 30 million people in the United States who are diagnosed with an eating disorder, less than 20% ever receive treatment. Project Heal is on a mission to change that by breaking down systematic healthcare and financial barriers to eating disorders and healing. Today, I get to do a deep dive into the organization's mission and how eating disorders can be treated with Dr. Kelly Rutless, who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders and is keenly aware of not only the need for competent and qualified clinicians, but also the need for providers from marginalized communities to join the larger community of eating disorder professionals. Welcome, Dr. Redless. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm so excited to uh, dive deep into this topic that I think a lot of people avoid talking about um, in society. Um, but before we uh, jump right into the questions, I wanted to just uh, get to know you a little bit. I guess what inspired you to uh, focus your career on eating disorders? Well, you know, unfortunately, I came into eating disorders by chance. Um, I think currently my goal is to uh, raise awareness for those mental health uh, providers, folks who are interested in being, uh, you know, therapists one day to choose this uh, by choice to sort of intentionally um, choose to uh, specialize in this area because I think it's so important. But my own journey was very different. Um, I went into graduate school knowing that I wanted to work with marginalized communities, knowing that I wanted to work uh, across the lifespan, but not really having a sense of 
you know, what particular psychological issue I wanted to focus on. Um, and so I came into eating disorders really by way of my internship program that had a a feeding program as a part of the required training um, and just really being dumped into the experience. And it was through getting this experience and sort of getting a better understanding of what eating disorders actually are in real life that I developed a passion for helping people navigate their relationship with food and body. Okay. Wow. Um, that is a, you know, um, that is an interesting way to just, uh, kind of get immersed into it. And then, um, found out that, uh, you know, that immersion was a calling for you. So that's, uh, yeah. that, um, that was, uh, I would say lucky because <laughs> that doesn't happen to a lot of people. <laughs> I agree. I, I do feel very fortunate and blessed to have had the experience that I had. But I think the thing that really spoke to me was the intersection between the the physical health and the mental health that the eating disorders, uh, that working with eating disorders presents. And the additional layer was that it's really a social justice issue. And I don't think a lot of folks are aware of just how influential um, social and cultural influences are on who develops eating disorders and how they become maintained, but it's sort of attacked all the different things that, you know, I enjoy in one. So, you know, it, I definitely feel blessed to have been able to, to find this um, niche. Okay. Wonderful. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I guess we should just start from the top, um, is, uh, you know, I think a lot of people maybe have, you know, images from either movies or, you know, um, a rough uh, idea of what an eating disorder is. But can you, uh, I guess, explain what really is an eating disorder? Because a lot of people just think somebody's just starving themselves. Right. So eating disorder, like the term eating disorder is really an umbrella term that describes any disruption in a person's relationship with food and their body. So it's not specific, but it just says, hey, this person struggles with their relationship with food in some way. So I do think that the vast majority of folks believe that if you have an eating disorder, you have to be extremely thin. And that is a subgroup of people with eating disorders, but it's certainly not the majority. The majority of folks that have an eating disorder uh, will look to be normal size individuals or will look to be heavier than what you might consider normal. Um, and so, you know, it it's not just about not eating. It's about how you feed yourself. Now, yeah, you just you actually touched on a point because, you know, the the instant image, you know, when I think of eating disorders of somebody that, you know, looks emaciated or, you know, like you're, mm -hmm. you're thinking, well, you know, um, you know, give them some extra extra food or, you know, um, or, uh, you know, that's the that's the instant image. And I'm sure like almost everybody, like 90 percent of the people think of that. But. Um, one of the things that you just brought up is that, you know, they, they can, a person could just look, you know, like, uh, you know, they don't have to look, um, uh, in that emaciated look, they might just have like an average body weight. And so you won't even know. And so one of the other things is that, um, I think that when it comes to easy eating disorders, we have a, um, like a stereotype of who gets into eating order disorders. So can eating disorders, I guess, affect everyone or is it just, uh, you know, this image of, you know, um, I'll, I'll just pick something and it's not to, you know, uh, beat up on anyone, but like, I think of like ballerinas or something like that. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what everybody thinks of. I think unfortunately, for a variety of reasons that we can talk about, the typical image that we have of someone with an eating disorder is a cisgendered, white, affluent teenage girl, right? That's the image, and she's underweight, right? That's the image that we all have of what an eating disorder is. And like I said, it, that's absolutely a, a subgroup of people that experience eating disorders. But all the data and all the research has shown us that eating disorders impact 
everyone equally across ethnic groups, across socioeconomic statuses, across, you know, religious beliefs, across languages. There really is no one group that is struggling with eating disorders more than any other. Um, and so I think that's important to just say out loud um, so that folks realize that it's it, a lot of people are dealing with eating disorders. I think the data is something like um, 5% of the population in the United States is going to experience um, some kind of disruption in their relationship with food at some point in their lifetime, which is a lot of people. That's, a, that's millions and millions of people that are going to struggle with an eating disorder at some point or another. And they absolutely do not fit the stereotype that we often see portrayed in in media or television or or even on online it you know anyone you cannot look at someone and know whether or not they have an eating disorder um we're used to assuming that it must be an extreme right someone who's extremely thin or someone who seems large oh that must be a sign of a disruption in their relationship with food but it isn't it is not always a sign of anything and so it takes a lot of care and a lot of um training to really be able to uh, identify an eating disorder now i guess um when uh I think, well, this is just my, you know, I'm coming from uh, an, an American society, right? So I also think there's, um, right. you know, differences of how people look at food. Like when I uh, traveled abroad, I think, um, you know, different mm -hmm. cultures look at food differently. And so I guess what would you right. say are the identifiers um, uh, fairly across the board. I know, you know, there's going to be outliers, but, um, what are like, yeah. if you were to pick the top three to know that, you know, you may have an eating disorder or somebody, um, close to you may have an eating disorder. Sure. I think some really important identifiers are going to be someone who is preoccupied with food, um, and preoccupation, meaning, uh, it really influences every decision that they make. So, you know, they determine whether or not they're going to go to happy hour by how much they've had. And if they've already eaten enough, then they're not necessarily going to go to happy hour or, you know, it, they're thinking about what they're going to eat on Friday when it's only Tuesday. And, you know, when they, when you say it's time to go out to a restaurant, they want to look at the menu first and check it out before they, before they get there. Right. We're thinking about someone who really is making a lot of their decisions around their food and around um, how they eat. And they might miss out on certain social events that they really want to go to because of their relationship with food and body, or they might, only go to certain things because of their relationship with food and body. So a preoccupation with food or a really big shift in someone's relationship with food is, is a, usually a sign that something is up and that they might have some challenges. Another issue is that if you notice, if you notice that they are, um, struggling with their health, right? If they have a major health concern um, related to food and body, but they seem to minimize it, right? It's something you've noticed a change in their food. In addition, you've noticed that their health seems to be declining in some way. Doctors might be recommending either weight loss or weight gain or something like that. But you see that they seem to say, no, it's not a big deal. I'm fine. Everybody's making a big deal and, and everything is, you know, you guys just don't know I'm actually fine and, and you're overreacting, right? Folks with eating disorders often lose sight of their, the seriousness of what they might be dealing with. Um, I think it's, uh, it gets a little bit challenging to talk in generalities because I think each eating disorder is so unique. So with anorexia nervosa, you're going to have someone who um, thinks they're larger than what they really are and, and seems to be preoccupied with their imperfections at times or certain body parts being larger than others. With bulimia nervosa, you might find that your, your loved one often leaves after eating, right? Leaves quickly after eating and maybe goes to the restroom and spends longer than you want. Or it's someone who eats, you know, a muffin and says, oh, I've got to get to the gym. I, I, I've got to run this muffin off, right? There's this 
you know, this idea that whatever goes in must come out or I have to earn my right to eat certain things. Um, with ARFID, it's someone who's particularly picky about food to the point where they don't, aren't able to feed their body enough, right? So this is someone who, you know, goes to the restaurant, there's a variety of different options on the menu, but chooses to just eat bread because that's the only thing that they like. And they go hours in between meals because they can't find exactly something that suits their taste or the texture's off. Something's always wrong and it makes it hard for them to eat. Um, And then with binge eating disorder, you might find someone who really wants to eat alone and who doesn't like to eat in front of other people and, and often finds ways, you know, to eat, you know, everyone's sitting at the, the meal and everybody else is eating and they're only eating a little bit and, and really does not like to eat in front of other people. So with each disorder, it's a little bit different. So it's hard to say in general, this is what you should look for, but hopefully those are some examples that would clue you in that either you might be struggling with your food or someone you love might be struggling. Those are good indicators to to note because, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of a few people like uh, when I was younger, like in, in school, the people that I, uh, you know, ended up learning that did have eating disorders. Those were things that I did see, um, uh, you know, um, happen with them. Um, yeah. And so yeah. one of the big things, you know, that uh, whenever we talk about, you know, crises or disorders or anything is that, uh, you know, the first part of question people always ask is like, how can I, you know, am I at risk? <laughs> Everybody usually yeah. says like, you know, so what type of people or um, how do you become at risk um, uh, for developing an eating, eating disorder? Or is this something that, uh, you know, um, is already wired in you? Mm hmm. Well, eating disorders, we don't exactly know how they come about. We know it's a combination of genetic and environmental factors sort of coming together in a perfect storm, but we don't have any like way of saying, oh, if you've got this, 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 and this, you're probably more likely. What I can say is that, you know, if if your family member or a loved one has struggled with an eating disorder, I think that's an important factor to consider. All right, let me be more mindful. I might be predisposed and not be aware of it. So let me be mindful of the kinds of thoughts I'm having around my own body image and and food. Um, So I think a family history might be a valuable um, indicator. Also the experience of trauma. Um, Trauma is, and, and, you know, what we talk about those ACEs scores. So um, adverse childhood events, we've actually found that there's a, a link between how many adverse childhood events a person experiences and their likelihood um, for developing an eating disorder. So, you know, a, a history of trauma or a history of adverse childhood events could put you more at risk for it. And then we've got to also think about cultural influences, right? So being in a cultural environment where uh, unrealistic beauty standards are really uplifted and you're in an environment where there's this idea of universal beauty and, and it's very narrow and, and only so many people can be considered beautiful. That's going to put you at risk. Um, being in that type of environment and not fitting in, not fitting that mold is going to put you at risk for negative body image. I think another really big, important risk factor for eating disorders is weight, weight stigma. So, you know, you've got on one hand, the unrealistic beauty standards being problematic, but also uh, this idea that being big or being being bigger than what's considered uh, typical is is terrible and that it's going to be the worst thing ever, that you're going to be shunned socially and that you won't be able to shop in, in certain stores anymore. And, you know, you're going to face discrimination because of it. You know, weight stigma is also a really huge risk factor for um, folks developing eating disorders. So we don't know exactly what causes them, but we do know that if you've got a history of trauma, if you've got a family history, if there are, if you're in an environment with a lot of unrealistic beauty standards, or if you're in an environment where there's a heavy amount of weight stigma, those things are going to create sort of a, a breeding ground for an eating disorder. Now you bring up a, a you know a, a great point because right now, as as we know, like uh, almost everything, especially after 2020, you know, we spend all our time. Like, uh, you know, not everybody, of course, but a good amount uh, on screens. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and so we don't have that, uh, you know, in person, um, 
you know, interaction, which then um, this is this is just my thoughts, but I believe there's like uh, studies on this um, that because you're no no longer seeing like real people, right? You're not uh, <laughs> dealing with people in the uh, you know, three dimensional and you, you know, see a, a person, you're just getting them on the screen. And so you really don't know, um, you know, what, what they look like, right? Like, yeah, you have that image, but you can't, um, I guess, what should I word? Uh, it's not, um, I guess, lack of better of a word to uh, find, but they're not tangible. Like you can't touch them. Right. And so they leave, they, they lose that, um, reality, um, I'm making up a word, kind of reality dimension, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so um, because we we are, you know, I don't think that's going to slow down. I don't, I think technology is going to con- continue to accelerate, um, you know, at uh, unknown speeds. Um, but, okay. uh, you know, I, I believe, would you say that because of the, where we are, in our society now is like a, a reason that we've seen like a spike in this area of eating disorders or what are the contributing factors that you've found? I, absolutely. I think social media is a, is a huge contributing factor to the development of eating disorders. I think it is a world where you can present yourself the way you want to, and you can, by default, right, that that image might not be accurate. That image might not actually be reflective of how you actually look. But, you know, for the person looking at the screen, it's hard to remember that most everyone is posting their highlight reels and that most everyone is posting images that are touched up or images that have, you know, really good and natural lighting that that, that hides um, marks and imperfections. And so it makes it seem like folks are naturally beautiful and everyone is looking like this and everyone is thin and, and, and it makes us feel bad. I mean, I think just about every research study that's been done on social media has found that the more time you spend on it, the more anxious and the more depressed that you feel. So, you know, when it comes to body image, a really important part of developing a healthy body image is seeing a wide variety of bodies, seeing them in all of their natural glory and becoming uh, desensitized to the fact that, you know, uh, stretch marks are normal and cellulite is normal and acne is normal and, and, you know, acne scars are normal. Like, you know, when we live in this virtual world, it gives us the impression that perfection is actually possible and that we should strive for that. And that is terribly harmful to body image, which can then create a world where, or an environment where you feel pressured and, and pushed into changing those things about your body, changing those things that are natural and normal to fit this idea of, of normal that is not realistic or healthy. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, we've, we've seen this, um, you know, I guess in, in so many different, uh, reports and unfortunately sometimes, you know, um, all these images of, uh, um, what I'll say, perfection <laughs> online, um, especially um, affect uh, the young people. And so um, because we yeah. see that, you know, uh, we're going to probably just continue and living in uh, more and more of a virtual world, how can uh, families help their, mm-hmm. their children and, and teens? Because it is affecting even young children these days because, you know, uh, you know they do their, their schoolwork and everything, even online. Um, so everybody's living in this computer world. So how can uh, families help their teens and uh, children, uh, you know, not get affected by eating disorders or if they do, how, um, you know, what can they do to kind of steer them in the right way? Um, I think so. Recommendations that I would have for parents, let's say, of young children um, uh, is really uh, delay social media as long as you possibly can. Um, I understand that it is a really big part of, of um, young people's social experience, but there, you know, there's just no denying the harm that it does. So I would, I would honestly recommend that if you have young children who are not yet on social media and are asking for it, uh, delay it. 
delay it as long as you possibly can um, because you know, young kids and, and, and teenagers are really in this stage of, of development where they're trying to under learn themselves and understand who they are. And social media just prov provides uh, too much outside feedback into a process that should really be singular and should be done, you know, with close friends and family and people that you actually know. Um, so with, with young kids and children, I honestly recommend delaying social media use as long as possible. And then I also encourage parents to really be mindful about the way that they talk about food and the way that they talk about body. And that goes for how they talk about their own bodies, how they talk about their own food goals, right? Because uh, unfortunately, you know, children are going to listen to what you say about yourself and they're going to internalize it as a way that they should also view themselves. So as a parent, if you're always talking about losing weight or the next diet or how terrible you look, you might think that's harmless because you're talking about yourself, but your children are learning by example, how hard or gentle they should be on their body, how critical or accepting they should be on their body by how you talk about your own. The same goes for how you talk about food. If you've got really strong black and white rules about this food is healthy and this food is bad and this is junk food and this is good, and, you know, your children are going to internalize those rules and they might not be able to apply them in a nuanced way. Um, and, and having such rigid ideas about food and health could also put them at risk and contribute to the development of an eating disorder. So I think for parents, how you talk about your body, how you talk about food, how you talk about other people's bodies matters. Ways, things that you can say and do that are helpful. Talk about what your body does. Remember to always focus on um, all the things that your body does on a regular basis. You know, try to compliment your children on their strength and on their speed and on, on other things that their body is doing besides their appearance. It's not to say that you can't tell your children that they're beautiful or that they're attractive or handsome, but it is to remember that the world is going to do that on, you know, for you. The world is going to focus on the superficial way more than it focuses on anything else. So if you and your home can make sure that you're focusing on, the function of their body and their other uh, per personality characteristics that you think are valuable, um, that that's going to go a long way towards building out their sense of self and making sure that it's not, that body image doesn't play an, uh, an ordinately large role in how they view themselves and in their overall self-esteem. I like that is uh, that you um, focus on the functions of the body instead of just the body's outer appearance, um, you know, because uh, I like that right. because you can't really, you can't argue against it as much. <laughs> I, I like that. Um, right. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, as they say, it's, it's the facts, right? This is what the body's doing. So that's great. Um, I, right. I I wanted to talk about because um, in this there's this uh, I'm sure you've seen it in um, uh, fashion magazines obviously on social and you know uh, with the, the celebrity uh, cohort um, of this uh, body image movement. Um, so, in your opinion, yeah. do you feel that uh, you know in what ways has the movement uh, helped or hurt eating disorders? Are we talking about the body positivity movement? Yes, yes. Sorry, body body positivity. I forgot to put the positivity yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, I think the body positivity movement has been extremely helpful, uh, for people who are dealing with eating disorders and for hopefully preventing folks from ever developing one. I think um, the ultimate goal of the body positivity movement has just been to. Um, give folks permission to enjoy themselves and enjoy life regardless of what type of body they have. I think for such a long time, our society really, you know, gave the message to folks in larger bodies that they shouldn't wear certain things and they shouldn't go out in public and they shouldn't be seen doing certain things and almost, you know, basically sort of shunned them and said, well, until you get the right body, you need to stay over here in obscurity. And I think what the body positivity movement has done is that it is, it's shown that that is not true, that it is absolutely possible to live full, happy, healthy, and exciting lives in every type of body, and that every type of body should be allowed to live their life to the fullest. And so I think that, that movement in and of itself has 
has really um, aided um, lots of folks in different bodies to be able to have platforms that they would not have otherwise had. And by giving folks in different bodies large platforms where they're seen, you are allowing the everyday person to become sensitized to different bodies being beautiful. And you're showing people that beauty is so much bigger than what we always thought it was. And that allows us to be kinder and gentler towards ourselves and each other, which goes a long ways towards getting rid of weight stigma, right? Weight stigma is all about, you know, being discriminated against because of your body. And I think if we are pushing stores to have to carry a larger range of sizes and we're pushing magazines and fashion houses to, uh, you know, higher models of different colors and different body types, that's only going to help us uh, be more accepting of ourselves and others. Yes, I, you know, I, I've been, um, it's been amazing because I don't think, uh, well, I know 20 years ago, like you, we definitely, uh, uh, body positive um, uh, movement uh, wouldn't have went over as well as it does um, today. I think um, we are as a society in a a different, um, uh, I guess, mental space because of the results that we've seen of not being inclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that um, interested me um, uh, about your work before I dive into uh, more specifically Project Heal is that you also, um, uh, because of being in a uh, specialized position, and then also that you focused on marginalized populations, because I think that is something that um, often gets missed in eating disorders, right? Um, I think a lot of people... Um, you know, rarely think of people who are, I guess you would consider um, uh, minorities in America. Um, and most people are not thinking of them mm-hmm. as having eating disorders. Um, and so, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I would love you to talk about like what you've experienced, because the image is never like, you know, I don't think a lot of people think of black women of having, um, you know, eating disorders or, you know, or, uh, you know, um, or uh, Asian, um, you know, uh, uh, women or I guess men. Um, I'm focusing on women uh, a lot because I think um, women get, uh, you know, uh, focused on the most of how they look, not that men don't, but, um, you know, in a lifetime, mm-hmm. <laughs> being that I'm a woman, I've seen they get focused on a lot more about their appearance. Yes. Absolutely. So I think um, uh, my uh, one of my passions in within working in the eating disorder field is working with marginalized communities because of the very things that you mentioned. Um, the stereotype of just, you know, there's the stereotype that everybody with an eating disorder is thin, but there's also the stereotype that everybody with an eating disorder is cisgendered or um, white or a girl. And that's really not true. And in terms of uh, Black people and people of color, you know, we don't have a lot of data out there, unfortunately. You know, on one hand, we know that Uh, Eating disorders affect everybody from all ethnic groups and all socioeconomic statuses equally, but yet the vast majority of the eating disorder research is focused on people who are in treatment centers. And the vast majority of treatment centers are filled with that stereotype. So, you know, it's a sort of like a a never ending cycle where the data only looks at the group that's in treatment and the only group that's in treatment looks a certain way. Um, But but what we know from the few studies that have been done is that um, native, not native, um, Latin, Latino and black teenagers are 50% more likely to experience the symptoms of bulimia than their white teenage counterparts. And we know that in regards to binge eating disorder, that the rates of binge eating disorder in black folks are equal, if not more than what they are in white folks. So, you know, we are struggling with, uh, our relationship with food and we're struggling with our relationship with our bodies. And if you think about the historical uh, harm that's been done to communities of color, it actually makes sense that we would struggle with body image and that we would struggle uh, with how we feed ourselves. When you think about the history of Jim Crow, that didn't just affect black people, right? Sometimes we think Jim Crow is only about African-Americans, but, you know, colored actually covered anyone who was not white. 
It impacted everyone. Were black people harmed probably more than everybody else? Absolutely. But a lot of folks were considered colored and did not have access to a lot of different things during that time. So, you know, my work has been to um, educate people, raise awareness and treat folks who wouldn't, who you wouldn't imagine have eating disorders because, you know, eating disorders can look a little bit differently in each um, marginalized community, depending on what the beauty standards are, depending on what the cultural rules are around food. I'm glad that you mentioned men and boys because I do think men and boys have often been overlooked looked and though they make up the majority, you know, in the general population in the eating disorder community, they are a marginalized group. Um, for a long time, our diagnoses didn't, you know, it, anorexia, for example, that diagnosis used to require a missed period in order to be able to be diagnosed with that. So that left a lot of men out of the conversation and, and unable to even get that diagnosis. So there's a lot of work that we still have to do to make sure that we are, you know, that our systems that are in place are able to accurately diagnose these conditions across different groups where it might look and present slightly differently than how it presents in the groups that have mostly been studied. Yes, and so now I want to turn the conversation to uh, Project Heal, um, where uh, you're working um, to bring all these uh, the eating disorders uh, to, to light, and then uh, also I, I'll let you kind of dive in on um, your your role at the organization, and then um, to talk about the organization and how they are um, changing. Um, the way uh, treatment is uh, taken care of, and then uh, I guess over the overall stigma of eating disorders. Um, so I guess uh, let's first talk about uh, your role at Project Heal and then how the organization uh, works to um, uh, tackle um, this uh, problem of eating disorders. Absolutely. So I am the chief clinical officer at Project Heal, and my role is really focused on um field development and really creating programs that encourage more providers from different backgrounds to specialize in um, eating disorders. Uh, in general, you know, we don't have enough providers um, to treat the amount of folks that are being diagnosed with eating disorders. And we certainly don't have enough providers of different identities to serve folks in this field. And so my role at Project Hill is really focused on um, creating programs and, and creating opportunities for providers to be able to get the training that they need um, and get the specialized, because it really is specialized training that's required. Unfortunately, it's not required that, you know, graduate schools don't require folks graduating to take any extensive coursework in the treatment of eating disorders. And so it's on the backs of providers to get that training postgraduately. Um, and sometimes it can be really expensive and there can be a variety of different barriers that make it hard to get that training. And so my job at Project Heal has been to um, think about different ways to address that barrier so that we get more providers who are um, trained in eating disorders and more providers from different backgrounds um, into the field. Yes, actually, you, you answered the next question. I was going to say, like, why, why um, most people with eating disorders don't get treatment. But that now makes total sense. Um, you know, not being a, uh, you know, a doctor myself, I didn't realize that, you know, it had to be um, so specialized, uh, which, you know, it makes sense because it is, you know, right. you're not just dealing with the body, you're dealing with, uh, you know, the mind and everything. And so, um, you can't just be like, oh, you know, uh, take two of these and it'll be better in the morning, um, as you know, uh, they would say with them, um, you know, right. other things. Um, so, yes, I didn't even uh, realize right. I didn't even realize that it, it actually, um, you know, would require doctors to go, you know, get a, a special um, like certification and really dive deep. And so, you know, after. I can totally understand then from, you know, you're like, oh, well, I already studied this. Do I want to go to the next step and study another thing? Yes. <laughs> so, um, wow. You know, that, that, uh, and I think some other issues. 
Oh, I was going to say, I think some other things that make it hard for folks to get treated is that, so you have the fact that there's not training on the front end, right? That says, Hey, this is, these are what eating disorders are, how it's trained. But the other aspect is that within the training, unfortunately, diet culture has had a really heavy influence on how uh, we view health and and how healthcare is, you know, how physicians are taught to look at weight and, and certain measures that are used, like the BMI that has been found to be, you know, racist in origin and, and not particularly indicative of health at all. Those are still very regularly used in, you know, everyday treatment. And, and so that also creates a world where providers that are not trained can actually do harm. So, you know, they could, you know, you could go in with an eating disorder and, and, and tell them, Hey, I have an eating disorder, but if by their standards, you look fine, they might tell you, Oh no, you're fine. Don't worry about it. And I've had plenty of clients tell me that they went into a provider and said, Hey, I think I've got this issue. And they were told they don't. So that's also another reason why folks aren't getting treated is that, you know, either the provider's um, don't have the ability or the training to diagnose it, or even when, you know, prov- uh, clients go in and say, I have this problem, they're not getting recommended. Um, they're not getting the proper treatment recommended at all. So there's two things happening at once that make it hard for folks to get treatment. Wow. You know, I didn't even, I, I didn't even know that. Like um, I have, of course, you know, went to the doctor and, um, you know, looked at the BMI. Um, most of my life I was, uh, you know, always right on it until, you know, I had a, a baby and then, you know, you blow up a little bit, of course, because you have to. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I didn't even, um, think of that, but I, I do just from my own personal experience, you go to the doctor, they're like, you're okay. You know, you're either, you know, you're 10 pounds under where the standard is or you're 10 pounds over. It's okay. That's usually what happens, right? (laughs) That's usually what they tell you. They're like, ah, that's good. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, everything's fine. Everything's fine. But might not be <laughs> right right you know um you know well that takes you know into another thing of like you know uh where where healthcare is, is you know um going and where people you know uh, need to dive deeper but i i i'm like i won't go into that <laughs> discussion but yes um but <laughs> but yes and so at uh, so then with with project heal i guess um, I know, um, I guess this, if you, if you want to talk about a little bit about the founders and, you know, how, how Project Heal came yeah. to be and, um, and then, uh, what makes it different from other organizations that are, uh, focused on eating disorders. Sure. So Project Heal was founded about, uh, this is our 15th birthday actually this year, and it was founded by um, two teenage girls who had recently went through and recovered from an eating disorder. And in going through their treatment, they recognized just how privileged they were to access the kind of treatment that they had. And they decided to create an organization that would make it easier for folks who did not have the financial um, assistance that they had to access treatment. And so uh, Project Hill was born. And, you know, from, you know, it's taken, it's had some changes and some growth since that time. Um, but currently, you know, our mission is to break down systemic healthcare and financial barriers to eating disorder healing. And I think one thing that sets us apart from other nonprofits is our focus on treatment access. Um, so our, our, organization offers several different programs, all focused on giving folks a different way to access treatment. Um, So we have a clinical assessment program where we offer free um, assessments um, provided by trained uh, clinicians who will tell you uh, whether or not you meet the criteria for an eating disorder and give you appropriate recommendations. Currently, the only way to get that kind of assessment is by going to a treatment center or paying a outpatient provider to to conduct one of those assessments. Uh, But if you don't have financial means, then paying an outpatient provider is out of reach. Um, And if you do have the means, when you go to a treatment center, unfortunately, you know, they are they are for profit um, industries, which uh, 
you know, they have an, a reason to recommend a level of treatment, right? They have a stake in the game. And so, you know, just so that you can get an assessment that is unbiased and that from folks who don't gain anything by telling you you need treatment or by recommending a certain level of care, right, you get an unbiased um, assessment by a trained professional who will walk you through this is what the diagnosis is and this is how you could probably um, properly treat it. We also have a treatment placement program where we have relationships with eating disorder facilities across the country. And, you know, we can help connect you with a low cost or free uh, placement in one of these facilities, uh, which is huge, right? Like I said, these things we require usually require insurance. We usually require some out-of-pocket costs. And if you can't afford that, then we, you know, have relationships with different treatment centers to be able to get you into one of those programs. We also have a cash assistance program. So if what you need is, you know, financial support to get the access that you need or get the care that you need, then we also have um, scholarships and, and um, things that you can apply for, you know, to get cash for all the different aspects of care, you know, flights, uh, co-pays, whatever it is that you might need to get the treatment that you need. We also have an insurance navigation program. So if you have health insurance, we have um, staff hired that are really well trained in helping you get the most out of the insurance that you have. So whether that's, you know, seeing a provider that's eating disorder specialized and getting your insurance company to pay for it when they've, when they've told you no, or it's seeing what your benefits are to maximize what options are available to you. We have a, a staff member that is an expert at helping people navigate their insurance to get the most out of it. And then our most recent program is a meal support program where we have um, a team of dietitians that will help sit with you during meals and help coach you through tough meals for free. So these these things are really huge um, uh, pieces of what help people recover from eating disorders. And at Project Hill, we are really, really uh, focused on making sure that treatment access is equitable and that folks from marginalized communities who don't often have the means or ability to um, you know, even know where to start can get the help that they need all along the way. That's fantastic because I would have never known any of this stuff that it was that hard to get, um, you know, treatments. And then also that, you know, um, that these centers were, uh, you know, focused on, um, you know, uh, profit and sometimes would lead you down a path that you may or may not need. Um, so that's fantastic to have people that, uh, you know, really understand all these, uh, you know, um, I guess you would say, uh, uh, avenues that you may be redirected to instead of being able to just, you know, go down the straight path right. to get the help that you need. Um, so that's like, yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> um, so do you have a, yeah. do you have a success story that you would like to share um, that you've seen um, with the program? Oh my goodness. We have so many. I mean, I think, you know, just in my time as um in my time here, I've had the privilege of being able to um, conduct some of the clinical assessments that we do. So, you know, there have been people that have met with me and I have done their assessment and I have been able to really help folks walk them through the process, get them into treatment centers and, you know, let them experience the possibility of healing in a way that they would not otherwise have been able to do it. Um, like you said, I don't think many folks are aware of just how many hoops a person has to jump through before they can even begin the process of meeting with someone or, um, you know, starting their healing journey. But you know, in my oper in my in my experience of doing these clinical assessments, um, I have had the opportunity of really setting someone's uh, foundation off on a really strong foot and and helping them get into the care that they need. That's uh, great. I, you know, for anyone out there that, you know, um, has had to deal with an eating disorder or know someone, um, this is uh, just a, a wonderful organization to help, um, you know, have somebody to guide you through it and, um, you know, make the whole process 
uh, a lot easier. And then also, uh, you know, working with people who really can, uh, you know, relate on a personal level that I also believe it's outstanding because sometimes, you know, um, uh, people don't really understand. They, you know, you can get like a, I guess they say, a sympathetic versus empathetic level of, um, you know, understanding what you're going right. through. Um, and my last question, right, um, that I have for you is uh, hopefully sure. something that um, you know can help all of us, and uh, you know whether we're suffering from eating disorders or not, is what is exactly a healthy relationship with food? What does that actually look like? Yeah, so a healthy relationship with food is one in which we are able to see food as this the multi-dimensional thing that it actually is. So food is absolutely fuel. It's absolutely nutrition. It's a necessity for living, but it's also a way to connect with others. It's also a source of joy. It's also a source of comfort. And so I think having a healthy relationship with food is knowing the basics, right? Having a basic understanding of nutrition so that you know what you're eating and why you're eating it and, and how your body uses it and needs it. And then allowing that to be the foundation of how you make your choices. But you're able to listen to your body. You're able to honor cravings. You're able to honor, you know, the fact that it's a social engagement and yeah, I'm going to eat birthday cake because it's a birthday and, and, and all foods fit. There is no right or wrong or good or bad. All foods have value, all foods have nutrition, and it's just a matter of us having a basic understanding of what balance looks like and what our body needs and, and, and being able to honor the, the, our hunger and fullness cues and, and what our body is saying to us. So I, I think a healthy relationship with food is really a healthy relationship between the mind and the body right? A trust that our body knows what it needs and an ability to listen to the different signs that it gives us that, hey, I want this, I want that, I'm hungry for more, I'm actually full, and being able to honor that without fear and without, you know, needing to push our body to look a certain way. So it's, it's, it's levels and, and nuanced, but you know, in general, a healthy relationship with food is recognizing the necessity that food plays, but also leaving room for the, the nuance and the joy and the social aspect that, that is also just as important um, and just as valuable in our relationship with food. I love it. And I love your answer, a healthy relationship between your mind and body. Um, and, you know, uh, not uh, restricting yourself uh, from the joys of life. <laughs> um, right, exactly. Uh, thank you, Dr. Rodless, for your time and insight. If you'd like to learn more about Project Heal, go to theprojectheal.org. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.org to start your project of change today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 